Leviticus comes in the first five books of the Old Testament, doesn't it? Which we know as the Pentateuch. And um, most scholars uh, would give credit to Moses for writing the book of Leviticus, though there are other scholars who look at some different writing styles in here and who would say that there were probably some priests who uh, helped Moses to write this, who made some additions to it. And uh, uh, basically what this is, is a handbook for priests. Um, when I started into ministry, a friend of mine told me, you need to go get you a pastor's manual. And I did, and it's a little black book about so big and about so thick. And in the pastor's manual, it has all the instructions on how to do a wedding and has three or four sample wedding ceremonies. It has instructions on how to do the Lord's Supper, all the scriptures and baptism and all the scriptures that goes with that, and then funerals and a lot of scriptures that go with that. Now, in a sense, for the priest and uh, uh, the writer here is writing a handbook for the priest. Uh, you remember that um, the people of God are just now being organized. And um, I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been a part of that group of people, that many people, with all the animals and everything they had going uh, with them and not having any law, any order, any anything. Um, the other thing that that God was aware of was that everywhere they went, even in the land of Canaan, they were going to be faced with pagan gods. Uh, you will remember the story of Exodus and, and uh, uh, in Genesis when Moses was sent back in to get them out of Egypt. And uh, Brother Lyle talking about spiritual warfare and how that there was a battle really could be described as a battle between the gods and which god was real. That battle is still going on today, by the way. Uh, there is a battle, a spiritual battle, spiritual war going on in our land and, and uh, around the world. And it's important uh, for us to know what we believe and who we believe and that there is but one God. But uh, uh, this book is, is divided into four different sections. First of all, he gives the laws regulating the priest. Now, you wouldn't think that would be necessary, would you, for a bunch of priests, unless you've been under the leadership of a bunch of Baptist preachers. And um, um, a lot of churches rewrite those laws every once in a while, you know, about what they expect for the preacher and how he ought to act. And some, re some preachers respond to that and others don't. But the priest, for the first time, they've got the tabernacle. They're ready to start worshiping and making sacrifices and leading the people of God and dealing with the sins of the people of God. And a, a large number of these laws in the book of Leviticus are laws that regulate the priest, that teach the priest what his duty is, how he's to go about it, and they're very precise in all of those uh, directions. Uh, the second part of it deals with purity. Um, and, um, you know, uh, a word for that today might be how to stay sanitary. Sanitation is what we call it, isn't it? Um, and uh, uh, if you think about it, 
And you think about this many people going through the desert with as many animals as they were carrying with them and no roadside parks to stop in, no place to pull off or any kind of relief, no fast food places. I mean, they were just there. And uh, you can imagine what would have happened had God not given them some kind of instruction on how to take care of themselves and uh, and some kind of, of law that would help them follow those instructions. And then there's a section on sacrifices. Uh, Alan's going to talk some about the sacrifices and what some of them were for in, in a few moments if you have questions there. Uh, also, the holy days and uh, that they were to observe, when they were to observe them and what they were to do. So that's a basic um, introduction uh, of the book. And uh, we're going to start taking questions. So, all right. Who has a question? Sue. <laughs> you want to comment on that, Alan? No. <laughs> okay. Alan don't want to comment on that. I have uh, no idea why it's in there. I, I, I know he deals with the issue of, of clean and unclean. And if he said it, it's good with me on that one. Um, you know, they also went into a little more detail in taking care of the young Jewish boys yeah. than they did the young Jewish girls with the right of circumcision and so forth. So a lot of that we don't really understand, and, uh, and that's probably one of them. Someone else asked a question um, about ladies and why the natural functions of a lady's body were claimed as unclean in the Scripture. Um, I don't have a sure answer for that, but I would imagine um, it's just simply for personal hygiene reasons, which nobody knew anything about in those days. It, one of the problems we have in understanding Scripture is we see the Scripture through, and we perceive the Scripture through our own lifestyle in our own culture. And you have to put yourself back into that culture to get a glimpse of what it was really like to live in those days. Uh, I was telling someone uh, I saw on the History Channel a, uh, a documentary about, uh, and I don't know who did this, uh, but anyway, it was about the history of man, and of course it was done scientifically uh, and showed evolution and all that, but you do get a good picture of the caveman age and how they lived. And I tell you what, it was pretty brutal. It was pretty brutal. Uh, maybe one step above survival for the fittest or survival of the fittest. Uh, lived in caves uh, with no water. Think about that. And, uh, and none, of the, none of the convenient uh, sanitation things that we have today were available. Uh, I told Alan today uh, one of the first jobs I got in the military that I didn't like was digging a latrine trench when we were out on maneuvers. And uh, that, was, that was a better job than filling it back up. But, <laughs> but uh, it wasn't a nice job, and that's, a, that's the only place we had to, uh, to use. And, uh, and so there's a lot of that that comes into this that you don't understand unless you think about what was the culture really like then. And it was primitive.
primitive. It was primitive. So you, you have to keep that in mind. Okay, Somewhere so we around. answered that. I'm sure you're all clear. Another question, please. Leslie. Okay. Uh, Leslie said in Leviticus, was it 14? There's a passage about where the Lord says, I may con- contaminate some of your houses with mildew. Um, has anybody had mildew in their house? That's still a problem for some people, isn't it? Uh, I was reading some about that today, and, and um, the word mildew there can be translated to mean different things. Right, Alan? Yes. We discussed that. Tell me about it. Well, it was two or three. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's just what we had commonly know as mildew or mold. Uh, what was that? I forgot the other word we had for that that, was, uh, that they were talking about. It could be uh, two or three different kinds of growth or things, and it was actually something else. What, I forgot what the other thing we referred to. I did too. But. Yeah. but I think one thing about this passage is that God says, I will put it there. So again, you have this process of you're going to do things and you're going to do them my way. Because when he says he's going to put it there, then he tells them the process to deal with it. And you would think, well, why put it there to start with? But again, that's those. this whole book seems to me about God saying, look, I'm going to tell you how you're going to live, and that's the way you're going to do it, or I'm going to kill you. And that's pretty much what a lot of the Old Testament comes down to when you read through it. And thank God for Jesus, or I'd be in trouble. I don't know about the rest of you, but... uh, that's what I take away from a lot of Leviticus is he is setting a plan because he's got to get several thousand years down the road to Jesus and he's going to start with this group and say, you're going to do it and you're going to do it this way or there won't be any of you left. I mean, he left how many dead in the wilderness? He said, you're not going in. So I look at it more as a, as a structure, as Lyle said, a, a governmental structure that they've never lived under and he's saying, now this is it, you know, What's the one man, his two sons went in with unholy fire. They didn't last, but just God, God's serious about this stuff. Okay, let me add just a little bit to that. One of the, one of the things that, that I'm reminded of is, remember when um, Moses was leading the people through the wilderness and um, they were hungry, they didn't have anything to eat, and he went before the Lord and the Lord said, I'll drop manna every day. Every morning you can pick it up. But the instruction was only pick up enough for today. Why do you think that was? Daily dependence. Mm -hmm. Daily dependence. They had no way of refrigerating it or preserving it. And uh, some of them tried to keep it a second day. And guess what happened? Mildew and mold. Uh, Which would be seen usually. Now we have black mold. I think in that day it was probably more of a white mold. And uh, there are specific instructions on how the priest is to deal with these kind of things in in their duties, Um, especially skin disease and mildew kind of are used here to help us see how to deal with life problems in general. And uh, if someone had a certain skin condition uh, or suspected their home or their clothing had destructive mold or mildew, the, the scripture says that the priest was to go and to examine the person, the house, the material, determine whether or not 
drastic measures had to be taken or whether or not they could just wash things down and, uh, and go back to, uh, to their business. Uh, what that says to me is, is that God outlines the things that they need to be very specific with. Um, I built onto my house once, and I've built a shop since I've been in White House. Both times I had to get building permits, and uh, Jack had to do the same thing when he built on his house. I didn't have any rejections, but Jack had one thing that had to be done over. The inspector came in, and he was very specific. I didn't think it amounted to anything. Jack didn't, and the contractor didn't, but the building inspector did. So it had to be fixed. Right, Jack? And uh, so that's the, way that, that's the way the Scripture is. And what's important for us to get from this is that over and over again, we read in, in Leviticus, especially in, his, in the rules for, for the priest, that they are to examine very closely uh, what they're looking at. And there were conditions that looked very similar. Mm-hmm. Mildew would be one of those things. White mildew can look like a lot of things. White mildew can even look like a white crust that you get when you have leprosy. And so when someone reported to the priest, we think we might have mildew in the house, the priest went there for the purpose of inspecting everything in that house, the clothing, the material, the people, everything. And... uh, uh, the conditions that looked similar to serious ones sometimes were fairly harmless and didn't demand anything drastic to be done. But on occasion, uh, he had to determine the exact nature of what was going on and something drastic did have to be done. And when you stop to think about it, that's the way we ought to approach our problems. Uh, you know, uh, life problems, sometimes we jump to conclusions really easy. Um, we hear somebody say something that might have been said in jest, and we take it dead seriously, really seriously. Or we hear a word of gossip pass through the church, and instead of searching out to see um, what the truth is, we accept it as a truth and just start making general statements about what's going on. And the first thing you know, we got a big problem on our hands. The same thing would be true with your health. You know, you have a symptom here, and you have a symptom there, and you treat this symptom... You treat that symptom, but you never deal with the disease. And um, that's what I get from this, that uh, we should be approaching many of life's problems very seriously, not jumping to conclusions, but finding out for sure what's going on. Uh, The priests were learning in this instance that they were to take great care before jumping to conclusions. Uh, suppose a, a person had some white, crusty skin, and uh, there were two or three skin diseases that looked like leprosy but really weren't. And so if you misdiagnosed that or you didn't examine it to find out whether or not it was leprosy, that person was sent into seclusion, into isolation, into a leper's camp for the rest of his life. And if he didn't have leprosy when he got there, He would soon after he did, because he would be living in the midst of them. So uh, that's what that's what this is about, Uh, and that's what the mildew thing is about: is just making sure. And uh, God says, "I will put it there. 
God created everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, he takes credit for uh, the, the ugliest weed just the way he does for the most beautiful flower. And uh, he takes credit for creating the mildew just like he would the manna, which fed the people and met all their needs. All right. Does that answer the question? How about another one? From what I picked up, again, it's just the way God wanted it done. I mean, there's, I don't know of anything significant scripture-wise or from God. I may be wrong about that, but I've never read anything. But again, it's just him giving them the process and say, follow this by the order. And, uh, and you know, and you, if you read through this, it's just detail after detail after detail about putting the blood here, pouring here, doing this, doing that. And it all seems... I mean, David said a minute ago, he said, how in the world did you even keep up with what you were supposed to do sometimes? Well, that was the priest's job. But, but I don't think there's anything other than it's just God's plan. And, uh, and, and that's the way he wants it done for, for whatever reason. Okay. I'd like to add one thing, and this is just a thought that strikes me, Joan. Um, you said, is there anything significant about putting it on the right what? Thumb. Right thumb, right earlobe, and so forth, and the right toe. Um, which side of the Father is Jesus seated on? The right hand. Uh, the right. Anytime you read about the right hand in the Scripture, you're reading about power. God's power, and when they say God came down with his right hand, it means he's coming with full power. And uh, if there's anything significant about that, I think it would be that, that this is a symbol of God's power. That's where the power is, and uh, uh, that's why they did it on the right side, just symbolically and getting people in the habit of doing that. Another question. Did they ever clean the blood off everything? I don't know if they did or not, but it just struck me as I was reading wasn't long after they start sprinkling all that blood until the Lord let them start making incense, yeah. <laughs> which you burned. And uh, so, and he didn't, the Lord didn't just say uh, sprinkle it around. He said, put it on the altar yeah. and put it everywhere. <laughs> so I, I think that's part of what it was. We might call that deodorant or something like that today. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there were times. When the garments, you know, when you read about the garments being made out of the finest of wool and, and all this decorations on it and everything, I'm sure they didn't throw those away. And, uh, you know, they would get so caked with as much blood as was flowing and splattering and sprinkled that uh, you couldn't have told them from anyone else's garment. So I'm sure that was, that was done. That sounds pretty gory, doesn't it? Yeah. You would think about what these people would look like. You've got two million Jews sacrificing scriptures. As a, you know, commentators will say the blood had to have ran in the streets. You kill thousands and thousands of sheep and cattle. And you can just imagine what these people look like if you walked up on this scene. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of eerie to think about what God had required for them to do and to, to do that. Okay. Another question. Yeah. Okay, did everybody hear? The question was, was God specific in, in all these ways in order to prove that people were committed to him? And I think the answer is yes. 
um, he wanted he wanted them to know more than anything else that uh, he was God. He was God. And because of that, uh, he leave, lays down these rules for them to live by. And he also does all these sacrifices and all that to hold them accountable. He made them responsible. He holds them accountable. If you're going to relate to him after you sin, there has to be the spilling of blood. Scripture's clear on that. There shall be no forgiveness of sin without the spilling of blood. And, and so in the beginning, he's doing all of this. And, Gary, this is where uh, Judaism got most of its laws and most of its ideas about um, what the law ought to be like, what it ought to say, and, and how it ought to be kept and how it ought to be honored. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a sacrifice that can be made for any sin or any trespass they did in here. Uh, if they didn't make that sacrifice and they were disobedient, like the two sons of the priest who carried unholy fire into the altar, uh, the fire went out and so did the two sons. So it was, it was done, and it, and it, did, uh, it did demand that you be absolutely obedient to the law. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if you compare that to our day, how many laws do we have on the books in America, do you think? And how specific are they? Um, really a lot. Do all the laws that we have passed, uh, I heard a preacher say one time, and, you know, my theory basically has always been you cannot legislate morality. You can legislate laws that make you think about morality, but you can't pass a law that's automatically going to make everybody moral, right? That's right. And, uh, and so all of these laws, all of these laws, God is not giving these laws in order to automatically make everybody moral. But he does make them to show them that there are moral choices that they can make. And when they make the wrong moral choice, there is a price always to be paid. Always to be paid. And um, so it, it is pretty specific. Uh, by the time Jesus came on the scene, uh, these laws, the, which began... I guess with the uh, with the Ten Commandments with Moses, what began there was a long list of like 440 laws that people were expected to keep, and uh, I mean they just kept fine the people, not God. The people kept changing and fine tuning the laws, and in some of the New Testament, you can see some of those, especially on harvesting and laws of the Sabbath. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. All right, another question. A wave offering? Where was that at? He seems to be just wavering the offering in the air, and I don't know that the significance of that. It's just a different type, seems to be. Okay, I don't know about that one either. Write down Lyle's name of that. He'll clear that up next He'll week. He'll clear that up next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what about another question? Way back in the back, Denise. You know, I don't remember reading specifically that it says the, the, 
the door of the temple or the tabernacle will be opened at 6 o'clock in the morning and closed at 6 o'clock at night. Um, but I would assume that every day there was a priest on duty to handle those sacrifices. And then they did have the special days, um, uh, holy days and the days of atonement and so forth that they, yeah. they had to follow. Yeah, I think so as well as when I read it because you could not. You may have to keep up with 500 sins for the year and bring 500 pigeons or 500 goats or whatever at one time. So I would think it would be a daily thing. I, I haven't seen anything to say different on that. Okay. Another question. Back to Aaron's <laughs> two sons. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. She, her question is when Aaron's two sons died, that Aaron was silent and uh, the message that he was given was that he shouldn't grieve, but the rest of Israel could grieve. Okay, does that? Okay, Alan, you got an answer for that? He's looking for something. He'll, he'll dig something up. It here. might have been partly because of his fatherly responsibility uh, to not train them up. It's be the only thing I can think because he was supposed to be training them in the way of the priesthood. And these two yahoos just go off and do it their way. And, and so I think Moses is almost saying this is part of, part of the punishment is you're not allowed to grieve over this. Um, there's, a, there's another place in the scripture about the prophet Eli and his sons um, who did a lot. I mean, they had a lot of scams going uh, in the temple and were doing a lot of things with women in the temple. And I mean, they were just... They were just outlaws, really. And uh, Eli and his sons had to pay a great price for that. And I think Alan is right. Probably Aaron, um, in God's eye, had not trained, because he has all these instructions in this, in this handbook, and he had not trained his sons to be the men that they ought to be. They were ignoring the rules, and any time you ignore the rules, there's a price to be paid. And uh, whether Aaron liked it or not, uh, he had to watch his sons die. And, you know, you remember Aaron was the guy uh, who was a spokesman for Moses when he went into Egypt. When Moses comes down from Sinai uh, with the law, because he was gone 30 days, Aaron was in charge of everything while he was gone. And when he came back, he was making false gods again. And blaming it on the people. So Aaron had some hard things to learn himself, you know, about how he had to stick with the word and the rules that he had to follow. So this wasn't the only time that, that Aaron had been in trouble. And, by the way, Aaron was flesh and blood just like all the other Jews. And please remember, your church staff is just flesh and blood. Amen. Just human beings. <laughs> with a lot of responsibility and a lot of rules that come from God, uh, and don't add on to those rules. <laughs> he's, he's given us the ones we need. See, that could have been, which means they were drunk. Could have been drunk on uh, new wine, fermented wine. And dead is dead. Yeah, dead is dead. <laughs> drunk or not, dead is dead. All right. Did, does that help? Did that help? Okay. Eleanor. Okay. Yeah. All right. So discipline, disciplined living leads to greater living. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
I'm going to take a look at something here. I don't know if you noticed this, dealing with the sacrifice part of this. In chapter 4, it talks about unintentional sins. And it starts off there talking about if the anointed priest sins unconditionally. What's, what does it say he has to do? What does he have to bring to pay for his, for his sacrifice? Is this question and answer time? Come on, guys. What? A young bull. Okay, then over in, chapter, in verse 13, it says, If the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally, what do they bring? A young bull, again. Now, go down in verse 22. When a leader sins unconditionally, what does he have to bring? A male goat. Then if a member of the congregation, a female goat. And you go on over in chapter 5, and it talks if a person sins because he did not speak up. Down in verse 6, it says a female lamb or a goat. What does verse 7 say in chapter 5? If he can't afford it. As rigorous as this system seems, God said, this is what you need to bring. But if you can't afford it, do this. It's regressive, if you'll notice. There's more required of the priest than there is the individual. And he even gets down to the point when he talks about, again, down in, in, in verse 11, he talks about if you can't afford two doves or two young pigeons, bring a grain offering. God's never requiring more than we're capable of doing. I, I think it's what that passage says to us if you look at it, because even though he's putting all these strict requirements on these people, he's saying, but if you can't afford that, do this. And if you can't do that, do this. He's not locking them out. He, he's, he's building a system to do this, but he's leaving them room to work in it. And, uh, and so they're, they're never at a point to where they can't comply. And, he, and that's not what he's trying to do to them. And I think when you read through this sacrifice process and you start seeing that, and he's working to what? Now eventually this is all about what? Several, what, thousands of years down the road to the perfect lamb who is what? Jesus. That's where he's going with this who paid the ultimate sin price, did it all in, covered it all. And so that, to me, to me, this is a, a good picture of how he's operating here, that, that even though this sounds strict, and it is, and even though it is so regimented, and even though he's requiring so much, it's still fair. It's still fair within the system for people to operate. And, and it was just a point that I got out of it. It may speak to you, it may not, but I just thought it was interesting of reading that regression on what you're responsible for. And even, now he didn't say the other guys, the higher-ups, if you couldn't afford. But when it gets down to individuals, if you can't afford this, do this. And I, I just think there's all kind of hope in that, and what God is trying to do with these people personally. Amen. That, that's exactly what it speaks, I think. All right. What do you think he meant um, by unintentional sin? Good question. Unintentional sin. A sin that you're not aware of. Okay? You can hurt someone's feelings and not realize it, or it was something you were not aware of. Um, someone said accidents don't happen. They're always made. They don't just happen. Um, one of the things that, that I've heard a lot uh, in the counseling room through the years, especially with couples maybe, and, and they've had troubles, and especially if there has been adultery involved. Over and over again, I've heard, we didn't mean to do this, it just happened. 
wasn't that they didn't know about it, that uh, they didn't know that it was wrong. It just happened. In other words, I didn't mean to go to that motel and go in and pull down the blinds. You get the story. You get the rest of it. So the, the thing is, God expects us to be responsible for what we know is right. And, um, you know, I mean, it might be possible for me to walk over here and say, whoop, I didn't mean to slap you upside the head. Um, so I don't have to do a sacrifice. But I think, it's, I think it leans more towards just saying, you know, I did that and I can slide by because I didn't know. How many of you have ever... I probably this, this is a call for confession, but how many of you have ever ever gotten a ticket uh, when you were driving and the driver said you were doing 60 and a 30? And you'll say, oh, officer, I'm sorry. I didn't know I was in a 30-mile-an-hour speed limit. I didn't know that. And what's the judge say? What's the judge say there? You two, you two that work for the DA. He says, ignorance of the law is what? No excuse. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. So just not knowing and going ahead and committing sin probably is not an excuse. If you don't know, then you've got to get back in the rule book. Yeah. And um, by the way, when we think about what's going on now uh, in our land and around the world with um, um, same-sex marriage and cohabitation and on and on and on and on it goes of people trying to rewrite the rule book. Uh, things that we know are wrong. And um, whether it's intentional that they get started in that kind of activity or unintentional really doesn't make any difference. It is wrong. It's wrong. So uh, uh, I noticed that today and I just thought I'd try to uh, get a word out of you on that. Okay, we've got about uh, ten more minutes here. That's a little longer to try to wrap this up. I'll take one more question, then we're going to do a wrap up. Jack, uh, that could have been a that could be a possibility. Of course, scrolls were the thing that they had in that day, the thing that they wrote on, um, the same as we have Bible today. Um, and I don't know that that's anything really significant, except uh, David said, "Your law is written." On my heart, uh, I told Alan today I felt like Jeremiah when we were looking at this when uh, God told him to eat this scroll. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, I think I was eating a uh, pizza. Yeah, a lean and queasy pizza at that time. And, and it kind of reminded me of a scroll, <laughs> a papery taste. But anyway, where does this bring us as Christians today? Where does it bring us? What does this mean to us today? Why aren't we doing all this blood sacrifice? Jesus came, didn't he? Amen. Um, you know, various, various denominations uh, have different ideas about Leviticus. For instance, um, uh, I want to say Jehovah's Witnesses, and that's what, not what I'm thinking. Um, what's the Adventist Church, Seventh-day Adventist Church? Yeah, Adventist, yeah. Um, practice a lot of the dietary rules in here. And um, uh, four or five years ago, uh, I was doing some odd jobs and, and uh, doing some painting and stuff with uh, 
houses on houses that Kathy Decker was trying to sell, and she she got me hooked up with this old lady. Uh, hooked up might not be a good word there in today's news. <laughs> I wasn't gonna say. She got me. I'm she got me in here. touch with this uh, little lady, uh, <laughs> who was, yeah, unintentionally. <laughs> it's confession time, again. <laughs> which was, uh, she was a widow of a Seventh Day Adventist pastor, and she was like 88 years old. And uh, what I was doing, she was downsizing. He had died. She was downsizing out of the house, so I was painting and doing some work on the deck and that kind of thing. And uh, she found out I was a retired Baptist pastor. So I started getting day by day the Seventh-day Adventist message. And she said, I'm 87, and boy, am I healthy. And she was, and she was really feisty. She said, you know why? She said, it's because of the way we eat. And I said, how do you eat? And she said, the way the Bible tells us to. It's clear uh, the way we're to eat and what we're to eat and so forth. And... Uh, I had not realized that Seventh-day Adventists um, were uh, that strict on what they eat. But uh, her daughter, her daughter was the one who did all the paying and agreement on the charges and so forth. And uh, she was not a tiny little lady like her mom. She looked like the average American. Uh, who had been to McDonald's and all those places. And one day her mother gave me the food speech in front of her, and behind her back she was going, and rolling her eyes. <laughs> so uh, uh, it changes from generation to generation, doesn't it? But uh, other Christians uh, feel like that uh, we don't have to consider ourselves to be bound by the Levitical law. And the reason we don't is because Jesus paid the price for our salvation. And there are a lot of scriptures in the New Testament. For instance, um, in Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, um, uh, he says that uh, believers can eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. In other words, all of those rules that, that applied then don't apply now. Um, the, in the letter to Hebrews, um, he gives a theological justification for that view, and it views Jesus as a perfect high priest. And he says there, he entered heaven not with the blood of bulls and goats, but he offered the perfect sacrifice and and uh, a Jewish, the high priest, continually was permitted to enter the Holy of Holies every day. Their priest got to the Holy of Holies only on special occasions. So, in uh, another place that says uh, the sacrifice of Jesus and the blood he gave is worth so much more to us than the sprinkled blood of bulls and animal sacrifices. So we're out from under a lot of that. But the fact is there are still lots of things that we have to do. And there are a lot of moral codes that we need to be aware of and that we need to live by. And uh, in the New Testament, even though Jesus paid that price and that sacrifice, and everyone who's accepted him and believes in him and, and believes in his death and his resurrection and has 
ask him into their heart, the Bible says we'll be saved. If you confess with your lips and believe in your heart, you will be saved. Now, even though you're saved, there's still lots of things that we have to do. The Apostle Paul said, by the way, about all these laws in the book of Romans, he said, I love the laws. He was an ardent student of the Word and of the law. He said, I love the law of God in my mind and in my heart. But that which was taught me and which convinced me that I could receive freedom really only brought me into bondage. And that the law only helped him understand what was wrong in his life. And he stayed condemned. In one place he said, O wretched man, who will set me free from the bondage that this law has put me under? Because he was trying to follow the rules. And then he begins chapter 8 in Romans, and he says there is no condemnation for those who walk in the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And that's where we're to be, walking in the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Uh, there's some other things that, uh, that Christians argue about, uh, and uh, uh, there are some rules in Leviticus that we do still buy into. For one, the statement that Jesus made when someone asked him one day, uh, what is the first and greatest commandment? And he said, the first and the greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, and all your strength. In other, th- in other words, it takes everything you are and everything you have to love God enough. And then he went on to say, and a second is like it. And that is that you love your neighbor as yourself. That comes directly out of Leviticus. He was quoting Leviticus uh, when he gave us that verse. How important is that verse? A couple verses further down, he said, All the other laws and all the other prophecies, everything else hangs on these two commandments. And if you don't know, if you don't learn how to love God with all you got, you don't learn how to love your brothers and your sisters as yourself, your neighbors as yourself, you're missing the whole show. So what essentially Jesus does, he takes all these rules and he boils them back down to two. He boils them down to two. And if we could learn to concentrate on loving God the way we ought to, loving our neighbors the way we love ourselves, and by the way, if you don't love yourself, what kind of predicament are you in? And why should you love yourself no matter what? Because God made you in what? His image. And if there's anything wrong with the image that he created you in, it's because sin has marred it and, and, and stained it. And the only way to get that cleaned up is to go back and remember that blood sacrifice when the blood was spilt from God's own Son on the cross. And, and the cleansing you got then, and the promise is that as often as we go to Him and confess our sins, He will be faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, that's where we are. Everything cleared up about Leviticus. Yeah, that's true. That's true. A lot, of, a lot of the rules here that we are not enforced to keep are not bad rules. You know, um, 
And there are other places, like the Nazarite rules that Samson was raised under, for instance. Didn't cut his hair. Uh, he didn't drink alcohol. He, ate, he only ate um, kosher food. And uh, he was raised up to be a mighty warrior for God. He messed up like all the other mighty warriors for God did. But um, God's law was good enough for him. And it'll be me, good enough for us. Let me respond to one thing. When you read through this, you need to realize that like the kidneys and the fat and the entrails, that was the prized part. That's why it said burn it on the altar. It's just in reverse. It's weird. But uh, they, they looked at those. I think if you go back and look at that real close, they looked at that as the more holy part, and they would burn the rest of the animal outside, the hide and, and all that. So keep that in mind when you're reading through that because you're talking about fat. They weren't allowed to eat it because it was considered one of the most delicate parts of the animal at that time. I think I'm right on that. And, but it would be a good thing. But it's still good. <laughs> Steak without fat on it any good. <laughs> but it is good advice. I think it means that any time you are being obedient to God and do exactly what He wants you to do and you're praising Him and worshiping Him, it raises a pleasing aroma to Him. Yeah. Okay? Uh, some aromas are not too pleasing. Mm -hmm. But that is pleasing to Him. You know... When I go out in my backyard and one of my neighbors has got his grill fired up and got a nice steak on it, boy, that smells good. <laughs> so that's a pleasing aroma to me, though I don't grill steaks very often. All right. Any other questions? All right. The, the whole purpose was to get people to learn to follow God's instructions. Because they said in that one place, he, God would even put the mildew in the house. It's all about, we talked about that earlier, it's all about following the program. Right. <laughs> no. And it didn't have Clorox. And, and because you had a breaking out didn't mean you had leprosy. Right. But, but if, if you didn't follow the procedure for getting that taken care of, you could be called a leper and be put in the, the leper's colony. Uh, you know, an instance of this, Jesus practiced some of this. You remember the time that... Uh, uh, he healed the blind man, and he spit in the dirt, and he made an ointment out of mud and rubbed it on the blind man's eyes and said, Now, go wash in the, in the pool and then go to the priest and for cleansing, and the priest will get all this done. It was the same, same kind of deal. I mean, they didn't have optometrists then. And, um, and the man was healed because he was obedient. You see it. You see that the fact that we have to be obedient all through the Old Testament, especially, and and God knows if they if they're not obedient to Him, word by word, letter by letter, they're going to go through the land and run into another culture, and the other culture has a different God that is more attractive, perhaps, than what they think He is. And uh, there you go with idolatry. And, and, and they fought that all the time through the Old Testament. Everywhere they went, they were faced with idols of pagan cultures. Tom, wasn't it true when they come out of Egypt, there was something like two million of them that's, in the winters? That's, that's the estimate. You've got to figure, you've got that many people living in close proximity. They had to stay within proximity of that tabernacle. They weren't spread out over the state of Tennessee. So if you read through everything in Leviticus but the sacrifices, there is a reason. There is a health reason for it. 
Now, some of it is repetitive like the mill do, but again, it was training them to, at the sign of anything to follow the process because it, it, disease could get rampant there like it could anywhere. And you imagine that many people plus animals all in close proximity. I'm glad I wasn't there. You know, it's, it, you can think about that. So it all makes sense when you think about how they were set up and what was going on and how they had to live. And they couldn't move to the, to the Ark of the Covenant move when the tent moved. And, and they might stay a place no telling how long. But, uh, so you, you had a lot of people living on a small piece of ground, and they had to follow the rules to survive just health-wise and sanitary-wise. <laughs> they wouldn't eat catfish. How about dogfish? <laughs> That's right. Catfish don't have scales. Okay, any other questions? All right.